Hello listeners, welcome to IT Guy Who Lives podcast. I'm your host, Palash Gupta, Diploma in Nutrition and Fitness Sciences from INFS India and Bachelor's in Sports and Exercise Science from Blueberry University, UK. The goal of this podcast is to try to understand science and science-based tools with the help of industry experts so that we can use those tools to further optimize our training and nutrition goals. With that in mind, let's hop into the today's podcast. We have a really, really esteemed guest with us today, the man, the myth, the legend, as we call him, also we call him as a Captain America of evidence-based community, Dr. Eric Helms. So without further ado, let me pass the baton towards the Dr. Eric Helms so that he can give listeners a brief background about his professional and academic career, how this uh, iron bug bit him and made him the man he is today. So over to you, Eric. Well, thank you very much for having me on, Palash. It's an honor, and I gotta love that introduction. You know, if you bring up Captain America, you know, flattery will get you everywhere, and here we are. So, no, but in all seriousness, it, it's a it's a pleasure and a privilege to be here. Uh, brief introduction: um, I am currently a research fellow for both sports physiology and nutrition, as well as strength conditioning at the Auckland University of Technology here in New Zealand. Um, of course, I'm originally from the States, but I've been here in New Zealand almost for a decade. And what brought me out here was my postgraduate studies, my MPhil, and my Master's of Philosophy, as well as my PhD. Uh, and I'm essentially just a researcher who's really interested in uh, creating sustainability uh, while optimizing performance for uh, both strength and physique athletes. So thinking about the big picture, uh, so I have done research into uh, auto-regulation and optimizing training approaches, as well as uh, nutrition and optimizing the fat loss and muscle gaining phases for these types of athletes and kind of combining the two and even delved into the world of uh, sports psychology and eating behavior, because that's kind of a necessary evil that you have to go through as a weight class restricted strength athlete or as a competitive physique athlete. Um, so that's what I do on the academic side. Um, but for the better part of, geez, we're coming up on 17 years now, I've been a lifter. Uh, and for the last 14 or so, I have been a personal trainer or an online coach in some capacity. And I am basically a science communicator uh, for that whole region. So I essentially am way too obsessed about lifting weights and I've made it my career, uh, the way I find meaning in life um, and my intellectual pursuits, as well as uh, my, my personal enjoyment. I compete in drug-free bodybuilding, as well as a multitude of strength sports, um, mediocrely at best in strength sports, but I'm, I'm above average in, in, in natural bodybuilding, which is fun. So I look stronger than I am. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so I started 3D Muscle Journey along with my colleagues back in 09, and that's kind of what was my evolution from being a personal trainer and just the guy who lifted into trying to actually help the specific community of drug-free uh, individuals focused on strength and physique. So I started lifting what, what iron bug bit me back in 04. Um, I was still in the air force. I was going through a relatively rough patch in my life and I needed some kind of outlet. And I think like it does for many people, it started very obsessive in nature, maybe even having a hint of masochism. 
but it eventually became something positive and an outlet to both express myself and build self-confidence uh, and ultimately uh, find an intellectual pursuit, which, which built not only physical confidence, but also mental confidence. And it really has helped me in my life. So I'm trying to pay it forward and help others. So that's the, the short, long story. And then here we are. Definitely, definitely. Like that was the, the really well said and really well summarized uh, your introduction. So I hope listeners who are not familiar with you, I don't think like in natural bodybuilding, I don't think if people are really living under the rock, they might not be familiar with the name Eric Helms. Apart from that, those people, everyone knows your name and your work, especially the books that you have published, the researches that you have done. Uh, sustainability has definitely uh, took a great turn when it comes of uh, both the physiology side and the psychology side of an athlete. Whether it's a contest prep, whether it's a powerlifting meet, sustainability has to be there. There has to be a thoughtful pursuit of strength, of body composition, and your overall health outcome as well. I have been trying to reach out to you for so long, but I was not able to like uh, give myself enough authority to do so. Hmm. I have been reading a lot more literature, books. I did my diploma, I did my uh, bachelor's uh, exercise science and exercise physiology, but I was like, haven't even tested the waters yet. I have to turn those research into practice. I have to walk the walk first before I'm eligible to become or to talk the talk. That segue, uh, before we deep dive into the agenda of today, I want us to throw some light on a really, really niche topic, which is often misunderstood, misinterpreted, and often misused by so-called influencers. And the moment they use this catchphrase called evidence-based perspective or evidence-based practice, we think whatever they are propagating, whatever they are telling, whatever the work that they are doing or the way they are handling their client is evidence-based and it's completely true, which often the case is not, because these peoples are not that much well-versed to decode the scientific jargons and literatures, and often than not, they derive their conclusions from a primary study, not going uh, up towards uh, systematic reviews, or you can say any kind of a meta-analysis, because uh, they are first thing, they are not that much well-versed. And then since they have a big influence over the social media, and the moment they label their practice as an evidence-based practice, we think whatever they are saying is the holy grail. So it would it be fine if I try to explain my understanding of what evidence-based practice is actually, and then you can further critique on it and add on it, right? So sure. free. So what I have learned over the time of my bachelor's in sports and exercise science in Newbury University and also in diploma in nutrition and fitness sciences from uh, INFS is evidence-based practice, especially when it comes to uh, strength and conditioning field. It came from the concept of evidence-based medicine or evidence-based healthcare, which teaches us the judicious use of mathematical estimates of risk of benefit and harms derived from really high quality research on population sample so that we can make informed choices about an individual when it comes to training and nutrition or any kind of a health of outcome of that particular individual evidence-based practice also equips us 
with all the tools and the scientific knowledge to decode all these scientific jargons and literature so that we can be better at tackling the jungle of the literature it also not only tells us just to read the papers but it also tells us to read the right papers at the right times and then alter our behavior or our practice not only our own behavior but also the behavior of the uh, practitioners in our close vicinity in the light of what we have found so all in all evidence based uh, practice teaches us how to use those mathematical estimate and that good data which is derived from high quality research on research populations or you can say population sample and use that data on an individual so that we can further optimize their training nutrition and health outcomes so over to you eric like would you like to further critique it or uh, yeah I'd be, I'd be happy to add to it. I think uh, Palashi did, did a great job of introducing where the term of evidence-based came from. It did come from evidence-based medicine and practice in the healthcare fields. Um, and I think you did an excellent job describing the best way to engage with research. Um, you talked about the hierarchy of evidence. Uh, you talked about how to uh, apply it at an individual level. And I think dovetailing from that, uh, for a practitioner, the most important thing to, under, to understand, in my opinion, about evidence-based practice is that it stands on three pillars. Uh, one of the pillars is staying up to date with science-based information and everything you said, so I, won't, I don't need to re repeat that. But two, I would argue, equally important pillars are experience as well as individual preferences. And I like to categorize in there as well, individual differences. Because one thing that we largely don't get from the, the, the majority of, of, evidence, uh, of, of scientific evidence is individual differences. There are, of course, studies on uh, the full range of individual differences, and also there are published case studies. But for the most part, uh, what we are looking at when we are looking at the evidence that exists for evidence-based practice is population means, averages, and uh, entire statistical paradigms, like a p-value, is the probability that something happened due to chance on sampling variance if you had a sufficient sample size. So it's all based around making inferences from the assumption that you're trying to get an idea of what the average response would be in the one true population from your sample. Unfortunately, uh, or fortunately, depending on how you want to look at it, uh, our clients, uh, the people we work with, or ourselves, if we're just an informed athlete, are individual data points, not uh, a population or a sample. So that means that while the, let's say the average response to a given uh, dose of volume or dose of protein uh, might produce something that we can actually calculate in the population, you or your client may be someone who responds uh, one standard deviation less or more than would be expected, or potentially even in the opposite direction if the dosage is too high or too low. So that is something I think we need to understand. Uh, and the way you can understand that and the way you understand how to apply the concepts from evidence based or from, from the research itself is to take into account the fact that there are individual differences and that once you go from staying up to date with the research and you go to, okay, now I'm going to apply it to an individual, that's when you need to pay more attention to the changes that you observe when you manipulate variables with an individual rather than what the population average um, might suggest in the literature. Uh, and that is something that if you pay attention, if you take notes, if you have uh, you know, systematic methods of coaching your athletes, your experience should help you do that as you get better and better pattern recognition, 
assisted by those good notes and those you know proper data points and all of that. So uh, there is something to be said for quote unquote intuition for an evidence-based coach because if you are doing things right and you're staying up to date and you're not stuck in a, a prior decade of research uh, or if you're not just stuck in old habits, then as you update your beliefs, as you are staying more engaged with the research, and as you therefore implement that with a larger and la larger body of, of clients, and you try to solve problems, you'll see what does and doesn't work more often. And you will see individuals that are quite different from the mean, but might be similar to some other individual with similar characteristics uh, that can give you a hint at where to start and perhaps have a leg up on a version of yourself that had less experience. So ultimately it comes down to those three pillars. Uh, and I think they're all equally important and they work together. You get concepts from, from the research, then you have to integrate that into your practice. And then that process is built through experience and it creates this positive feedback loop where if done correctly, you get better and better at your job over time and your clients get better and faster results, hopefully. Yeah, very, very well summarized. I definitely love that uh, summary. Like there has to be say like there is an individuality definitely and there is inter-individuality as well. And when we see any kind of researchers, we have to take in the uh, account the biases, right? There will be sampling biases. Sampling error will always be there. There will be confirmation biases. There will be performance biases. There will be parametric test biases and all with that. So along with that, I have a five point scale is the first point what I go through is formulate the problem. Ask the right research question. Second, once you have formulated the problem, Track down with maximum efficiency what is the evidence that you already have to tackle that problem. Third, once you have found that evidence, critically appraise it, which, which basically means weight it up. Check its validity, which means closeness to the truth. And check its clinical applicability, which means nothing but practical application. Then fourth, use that evidence in your practice and the fifth measure the outcomes and then you can go from there so those five point pillars and the hierarchy of evidence at the base level we have primary studies and the top level have we have systematic non-systematic and meta-analysis reviews so definitely we need to the reason i came uh, i started with this topic is we have two ends of the spectrum on one end of the spectrum, we have completely general population who not only are not well versed with the uh, scientific jargons and literatures like standard deviation, what it means, uh, confidence interval, p-values, they don't even know or they don't even care to learn about it. And on the same uh, spectrum, we have a bro culture, a bro community lifting. They don't even care about these things. On the other hand, we have educator like you the researchers like you who actually live and breathe statistics whose work have been published over the time not only they do the researches but they turn their researchers into practice but then we are left with this murky water between two these two end of the spectrum where we get pseudoscientists or you can say pseudo evidence-based uh, practitioners because Nowadays, social media has becoming bigger and bigger, and it's the one of the biggest platform to spread the knowledge, whether it's in the uh, benefit of the general population or it is, it's in the harm of the general population. On the other hand, these pseudoscientists, they might be having a lot more followers, but they are not well versed or well equipped to translate those uh, uh, 
scientific literature and turn those researches into practice. Let's suppose like everyone wants to have increase their testosterone, especially in the natural bodybuilding community or any kind of athletic community. And, and I really loved your podcast with the Iron Culture where you ex- uh, uh, had that guest. I forgot his name, but uh, you ex- explained about the testosterone and the TRT protocol. So when a study comes out, it shows that XYZ supplementation increased the testosterone in male by 5%. And if you jump on the conclusion and start recommending that particular supplementation like the aspartic acid when it came out to your clients, it is, yes, it is statistically significant. But if you know the uh, endocrine system of a human body, your testosterone varies by 70% the moment you wake up and the moment you go back to the sleep. Not, and you are completely neglecting the side effects of that particular intervention. Right. So just because something is statistic, statistically significant, that doesn't mean it has practical significance as well. On the other hand, one more research which we got really uh, uh, heated up, the ice cap trial, right? The, the diet breaks. It was statistically not significant, which we used to believe like it would have uh, uh, a diet break would have uh, produced more positive physiological changes, especially a smaller diet break. But it has so much high clinical significant potential because when it comes to chasing the physiology of a human body, we often tend to forget that there is a mind attached to it. There is a psychology attached to it as well. And especially when you are really going to those terminal range of body fat, those essential body fat levels when it comes to uh, contest prep, we have to make sure that we are not handling a machine. We are handling a human. He has a human side he or she has a human side. There is a psychology attached to it. And once you do a contest prep with a diet break, you will never do without it. Like there are uh, other ways to do it. Yes, uh, there are multiple ways to skin a cat, but there are only few ways to skin a cat as efficiently as possible. So can you throw some light on few of your experiences where you see really really good studies but they didn't translate into the practice yeah there's a there's a long history of disconnects between research and application um not just well that's truly the the reality in any applied field um you know it where this is most easy to see is in a different field, which is actual like pharmaceutical sciences or the development of drugs. Um, you mentioned the difference between clinical significance and statistical significance. Um, you know, the funny thing is in our field where we are almost always dealing with too small of sample sizes, uh, our hierarchy of evidence, you can definitely defend the idea of a meta-analysis being at the top because it's not until you conduct a meta-analysis in sports nutrition or exercise science where you're dealing with potentially hundreds of pooled participants. Now, I won't get into all the potential issues with meta-analyses when they're done incorrectly, but assuming a meta-analysis is done properly, it is the highest standard of evidence we're likely gonna have in our field. But in pharmaceutical science uh, or, or public health, we're talking about multi-site hospital joined, uh, you know, millions of dollar grants, and they have thousands of participants. And the benefit of a randomized controlled trial is you don't have to control for heterogeneity like you do in a meta-analysis. And what that means, to put it in simple terms, is that if I take two studies on volume, they might have very different protocols in terms of exercise selection, uh, you know, reps, load, but we're 
accepting that and we're using statistical methods to control for that difference and we're trying to look at the isolated effect of volume, say on strength or hypertrophy. So there's a weakness to that meta-analysis or I should say there's a limitation to it. However, in this hospital study, they have thousands of people who are just simply doing one of two things. They're taking a placebo or they're taking a drug or there's also a control group doing nothing. So we can control for regression to the mean or what would naturally change over time with no intervention or no belief of an intervention like in the placebo. And we can really get to the heart of whether or not there was a true effect because they don't fall short of the sample size requirements. Um, most of sports science is not reaching the, the, the necessary sample sizes we need to actually have confidence in the p-values reported in individual studies, which is, again, why we use meta-analyses to have uh, true confidence in whether or not there is a finding. But you could argue that the hierarchy of evidence in, say, the medical field, I would say an RCT with 4,000 people would be better than a meta-analysis. Yep. You know, until we're at the point where we have, like, multiple meta-analyses with, like, 10,000 people, you know, like an umbrella meta-analysis. Um, so anyway, so an interesting aspect of statistics, and I won't spend too much time on this, is that there's a interdependent relationship between the sample and the power of the, the, the effect size you can observe, which is essentially statistical power. Uh, so that a very small effect, let's say generally based on uh, Cohen, uh, the sample, sorry, the, the effect size that we consider is trivial is anything less than 0.2. And that's a standardized difference between two values. It means 0.2 uh, of, of a standard deviation between two different means. Okay, that's a small effect. And we have 0 0.5, 0 0.8 and higher, and it moves up to medium and large. Anything less than a 0.2, we consider that to be a trivial effect size. Trivial. And generally, in sports science, to see when we have like 10, 20 people in each group, to see statistical significance, we need a large sample. And it's essentially a signal to noise issue. Um, so uh, since we don't have a large sample, we can only really observe medium and large effects. However, most of the time, there aren't actual medium and large effects. So if you look at a meta-analysis on creatine, the standardized mean difference when you take like 40 studies is small. It's like a 0.3, right? So when you see an individual study and it finds a statistically significant finding for creatine at 0.5, we know that's actually a overrepresentation of the effect of creatine due to sampling variance. And, but we might see another study where there is no effect of creatine and those average out to get around to that 0.3. So, some, so here's another example in, in sports science, probably, or sports nutrition, I should say. And when you look at comparisons of higher proteins to lower protein intakes in individual studies and the effect on strength or hypertrophy, by my estimation, somewhere between two-thirds to 80% of them have no statistical significant no finding between yeah. them, right? I'm only aware of literally one study ever that have found a, a better outcome for a lower protein intake. And then the other, like, 15 to 20% favors a higher protein intake. And it's not until you meta-analyze them that you start to see what protein intake, probably between 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kg if we take the upper end of the confidence interval, which I won't explain. But it's not until we get that meta-analysis do we know what's a good clinical recommendation. However, we can get that directly from one of those RCTs. However, those RCTs on pharmaceutical drugs, what if they find, because they have such a huge sample size, that the actual effect is only 0.07, which is a trivial effect size? Well, it's statistically significant because we had thousands of people, so we can see these very small effects. 
but is a pharmaceutical company going to invest millions of dollars and produce a drug that might only reduce your symptoms by an, an unnoticeable, clinically, clinically insignificant value? No. So there is a threshold in that kind of research to when you need to actually see not only a statistically significant effect, but like you said, a clinically meaningful effect. So we don't have to deal with that in sports science. It takes decades of research before we really get an idea of whether something might have an effect that is negligible, but still real. Uh, but they're out there. Like I said, it's, uh, you know, for example, here's, here's an interesting one. The effect of volume, more sets on strength has, based on a Ralston 2017 meta-analysis, uh, for most of the, the types of strength it measured, like isometric or 1RM or et cetera, it's right around the threshold of 0.2. It's like 0.18 or 0.2. So, for, so while there is a positive effect of doing more volume on strength, it might not be worth it. You know, it might, you know, which is not the same as it is for hypertrophy, which seems to have a much more uh, detectable and meaningful dose response relationship. So then you have to think, well, oh, all right. So I've seen these studies where volume seems to have an effect on strength, but there's a disconnect between the real world where let's say a power lifter starts hammering a ton of volume on the big three. At what point with that volume, are they more likely to get injured and be unable to even train and actually get weaker in the long run? Well, we don't know from the research because the average study is only eight weeks long. So we're based on the injury rates that we see in powerlifting, we're unlikely to detect many injuries in eight or even 12 or 16 week studies. So is it better to have a higher volume approach? Maybe in a very robust, you know, injury resilient athlete who doesn't have prior injury history, but it's, it's a lot of work to get a small payoff. So maybe a different strategy would be your better default uh, for your average powerlifting client. So that's just one example of how there can be a disconnect between something that might be statistically significant, but maybe not clinically meaningful. And then the potential issues with the fact that studies are short term, but life is, well, the length of life. Really, really so, good. Yeah. So we definitely need a cohort study in these sports science literature. We can, where we can follow up for a long period of time and then we can see those changes which gets accumulated over the time period because in sports science especially when it comes to strength and uh, hypertrophy it's not the one session not the one set but it's the accumulated effort over the time period which will manifest in those results or the adaptation you are after so definitely a really, really good summary so i will be concluding this podcast right here making it a short and sweet one as my vision is to have a bottom-up approach establishing good foundation of basics first so that our listeners get equipped with the right knowledge of basics and then later on further be ready to tackle on the nitty and gritty stuffs like advanced concept when they get shared by the industry experts. So with that in mind, it's my humble request for you who will be listening to this podcast to share this podcast with all the people in their close vicinity so that they also get benefited with this kind of knowledge and it will not only help you guys in further expanding your knowledge reservoir but it will also help me by having a good presence on online medium so that I can invite more and more esteemed guests and industry experts so that they will provide you further insights on what 
actually evidence-based practice is. So until further ado, see you next time.